You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. We are not permitted to show you nudity in the following material. However, when you see the actual film, you will see some very, very funny nude sequences. These are the musicals America will always remember. Yes, these musicals were examples of Hollywood's finest hour. Until they made the musical you will never forget. What an idea! Well, what is it? The first porno musical. The word was out. And they streaked from all over the country to audition for the movie that was going to set Hollywood on its heels. I just want to do a movie. Are you willing to perform in the nude? Well, sure. As long as I don't have to take my clothes off. Um, what have you done? Oh, I've done fellatio. Can you believe it? And some minor bestiality, too. It was destined to become one of Movieland's most talked-about films. The first nudie musical. I got dibs on the crane for rehearsal. A project that combined the cream of the industry's technical and creative talents, all pulling together. Ice camera's action! They said it couldn't be done, but they were wrong. And the first nudie musical was off with a bang. Hello, honey, what you doing tonight? Hello? I got it, Rosie, I got it! Well, I didn't give it to you. Look, Rosie, I figured out what's going to save us. I figured out who's going to do the number. Who's going to do the number? You! The first nudie musical. The bare truth about the making of the most original film you'll ever see. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Angela Mack. Well, hello there. Nice to be back. Also with us this week is Mr. Trevor Gumble. Hey, how you doing? First timer, long time listener. This week we are discussing the first nudie musical. Released in 1976, the film stars Stephen Nathan as Harry Schechter, a down-on-his-luck movie producer who's reluctantly entered the lucrative world of pornography in order to keep his father's studio solvent. He gets the bright idea to shoot a musical, and at the behest of his backers, a nudie musical at that. With the help of his assistant, Rosie, played by Cindy Williams, and with the help of the Wet Behind the Ears director foisted upon him, John Smithy, played by Bruce Kimmel, we see the production of the titular first nudie musical. I usually ask folks when they first saw the film that we're going to talk about, but I have the feeling that neither Angela nor Trevor saw the film before I asked them to be on the podcast. So I will just ask, Angela, what did you think of the first nudie musical? Well, I was impressed. Every once in a while you come across something that's exactly your cup of tea. I have to say the uh, the frank dialogue, and not to mention the pervy musical numbers, I'm sold. How about you, Trevor? 
I surprisingly enjoyed it. It kind of it kind of took me took me by surprise when I when I first watched it. It was actually a lot more more sweet and lighthearted than you know I expected it to be, and it was actually quite funny. And surprisingly, musical numbers were actually pretty catchy. Uh, but yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought Cindy Williams was hilarious as the can't, I'm not going to say straight woman to to uh, Schechter, the you know the wisecracking kind of person. But yeah, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Since you guys hadn't seen this film until the podcast, I will tell my little story of how I first came to see the film. I think my mom actually either rented this or somehow recommended it or had seen it. But I remember watching this movie with my mom. A little uncomfortable <laughs> there, but but still not too bad. I just remember her loving the dancing dildos. And also cracking up about the one woman singing scales. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite parts. I love that part. Look, I um, don't know if you know this. Uh, this film has singing and dancing. Did you bring anything to sing for us? No. Well, could you just sing scales for us then? Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, Dick? Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Full. Um, well, uh, we'll uh, be in touch, okay? So years later, when this came out, uh, I think it was like the either the 25th or 26th anniversary, it came out on DVD, and I picked it up and rewatched it then. And yeah, when that scale scene came up, I was just like, oh yeah, now I remember this. I hadn't remembered it from the beginning of it, and it's got a fairly memorable opening. I mean, we do start in the, the Schechter studio, and we've got Harry, who's uh, there with all of his backers, and I love all these kind of dirty old men that he's dealing with and trying to keep his dad off of the lot. He doesn't want his dad to, to see that he's been making these uh, adult films. Then we've got the whole idea of him coming up with this idea of making a musical and uh, with Rosie's help, I believe she kind of uh, helps plant the seed. We are off to the races from then. Then we have our first big nudie musical number going on in the film. And yeah, I, really enjoyed the songs in this. I was very surprised. I thought maybe it would just be kind of a gimmick that they would call this the first nudie musical. And I really didn't know what to expect the very first time that I saw this, but I found myself humming the songs all those years later when I would rewatch it. Uh, it would have been so easy to just make the songs kind of throw away musical numbers to just focus on the straight comedy. But, you know, he actually did put, it seemed like he did put real thought and real, focus into the songs kind of fitting in with the actual story rather than ju them just being okay here's a song because you know we have to right if anything it feels like the opposite it feels like the songs were there first and then it's a matter of where are these going to go and how can we craft these to be in there because a, a lot of the times granted once we get into because we start at the studio we start with the beginning of it we then we go into the tryouts we get introduced to our characters once we actually get into the shooting of the film and having the musical numbers which basically are parts of this musical i mean a lot of times the action just kind of stops because we are 
basically filming or watching the filming of these different acts. So sometimes we see things from the perspective of being kind of, you know, behind the camera and seeing things being shot. And other times we're watching almost as if we were in the audience for the premiere of, I'm thinking of like the, uh, the orgasm song seems to be more shot that way versus that dancing dildos number where it's much more of, this is the antics that are happening on screen. And of course it's, it's more appropriate for one to be shot one way versus the other one being shot the other way. Speaking of the orgasm song, that was actually one of my favorite songs being, even though it was like the shortest song in the movie, I thought it was actually very funny and actually was perfect for the amount of time it took and didn't kind of overstay it. It's welcome. But I thought it was a really funny orgasm is a, it's, it's the way he sung it. I think that made it even funnier. And having the big microphone or megaphone yeah. and everything. That, that yeah. made it a lot funnier. Well, you know, that first dance number, I wouldn't say the film is, dated it's actually surprisingly fresh feeling you know for being well from 75 it was made in released in 76 but there was something that caught my eye when uh shecker is you know singing about what he's going to do and all the the nude ladies come in dancing with the beads and such every breast there had a jiggle to it like, there are six ladies dancing and 12 breasts jiggling away. I mean, you just don't see that these days. I mean, it made it feel more nude because they were real breasts. Like, <laughs> wow. I, I forgot that I haven't seen real breasts jiggling in a while. And they were nice-sized breasts. I mean... Yeah. it was That was actually a good point, Angela. I didn't really think of that. Um, oh, it's okay. I figured the people with penises in this conversation wouldn't want to be like, they were jiggling breasts. So I, I thought I'd throw that in. It'll make you feel more comfortable. We could talk about the guy's penis during the auditions. You know, the uh, the man's penis during the audition, you know, and I hate to say that I noticed this, but um, chubby but small. <laughs> well, maybe he's a, a, a grower and not a shower. But I loved how the songs were so, you know, the lyrics reminded me of really clever limericks. Even the, the the audition songs that were not meant to be like full musical numbers, just audition songs. The the couple we were talking about, the guy with uh, the guy with his dick out and the naked woman, they were doing the I don't want to say tap dancing routine because they weren't tapping, but they had the canes and doing the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers kind of thing. Right. You know, it's interesting. I I recently watched. Um, gosh, I don't know what it was called. It was a YouTube thing where they took uh, kids that were born this century. And they showed them 90s music videos. And all of them were like, wow, I really thought that the 90s were kind of like prim and proper, you know, like we show more now than they did then. It's like, wait, what? Like, like we're the 50s? No. You know, seeing that, I guess I have the same impression of the 70s. You know, I've seen the exploitation films and everything. I don't know why it's still ingrained in my mind. But to hear Cindy Williams drop the F-bomb. And all these things said so casually, and especially during the audition song, they're dancing like Fred and Ginger in the nude. Yeah. And outrageously raunchy dialogue in the song. Yeah. You know, it's just, um, it's surprising. Well, Cindy Williams, you know, we all know her now from like American Graffiti, Laverne and Shirley, and, you know, Happy Days. You don't expect the quote unquote America's sweetheart to be yelling, the stunt cock is here. So it, it, it kind of throws you for a loop. Which so, I, I love that phrasing. 
But I, you know, I didn't realize that's where it came from because, you know, being like an orgasmo fan and things. Wow, it's interesting to see the origin. And I wonder, is that the origin? I imagine it had to have been around quite a bit before that, or it had to have been at least in the common parlance for them to throw it into here. It seems like it was kind of commonplace to have a stunt cock. I mean, I, I don't imagine its origins were with First Nudie Musical. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was, it was it was common before then, but, you know, what do I know? Um it's interesting that by 1976, I mean, I know that there probably already were porn parodies happening before 1976, and I wouldn't necessarily call this a porn parody. This is pretty far away from pornography, but even within the adult film industry, I'm sure that they were already kind of starting to lampoon, and definitely they were lampooning when it came to a lot of the titles and these kind of things, but it felt like such a, for lack of a better term, mature market by 76, even if you go back to, and I know Deep Throat wasn't the first, but considering Deep Throat as this kind of high watermark for the quote-unquote acceptance of pornography in America and this kind of groundbreaking film for for adult cinema, I mean, that was just a few years prior. And so to see this movie in 76 kind of looking askance sometimes, but looking back at pornography and, and kind of taking the piss out of it, I, th- I thought it was fantastic that it, it had come that far that fast and was already ripe for this level of parody. Yeah, very timely, I thought. I, I think by our standards now, very European, you know, this is something I wouldn't be surprised to see that level of humor with nudity and sex you know, in something, if I, if I were staying at a hotel in Germany or Holland or something, but God, we're so much more prudish now. Yes, definitely. Well, as I was watching the film again, it kind of reminded me in some respects of, of Zach and Mary make a porno in the fact that they need to make money. So they make an adult film to make that money. And the two people that think it up weren't necessarily supposed to be in the production. They end up being in the production and they have these quirky cast of characters. It reminded me that in that sense, but it definitely had the the same kind of heart to it. But I think um, this one was a little more well, yeah, I guess slapsticky than uh, than um, than Zach and Mary were. I kept having thoughts of uh, similarities between this and Bowfinger, of you know yeah, that sort that- of uh, guerrilla filmmaking in a way of how they have to send the director away and they're trying to do things behind the back of the father and. And, you know, at the end, when the cast is very much at the end, when the cast finally sees the finished product and they're smiling when they see their scenes up. And I don't have a date on it. Pennies from Heaven had to be around that time, right? 76? Well, I want to say Pennies from Heaven, the Steve Martin film, I want to say was 80. But then it had been, uh, I believe, the Dennis Potter play or or teleplay that it was based on was earlier than that so yeah it would have been i thought um, it was knocking around for a bit you know before the movie which makes me you know it sort of touches on a i don't even know what the subgenre would be called but you figure there's a mindset like there was a feel of um with the slapstick humor and the clever wit i it seemed almost like a johnny dangerously feel to the humor in, in that respect, you can also see the inspiration for other kind of uh, comedic musicals you see today. Like, I don't know if either of you have seen the Reefer Madness movie musical. Oh, yeah. 
that was very slapsticky, very funny, and the songs were amazing. And that kind of, you know, fits the, the archetype of a musical you wouldn't expect to be musicalized, I guess. You know, and I, I really, I really do like, uh, musicals that kind of subvert the genre. Well, then yeah. you don't feel as bad watching it. It's like, well, I, I, I'm not into disco. I just like this because it was especially clever. It fits very well. And I think there's definitely room for more of this. I kind of wish we'd see, we'd see more film. I mean, they, they're definitely doing a lot with, with more subversive musicals live theater wise. Um, like in New York and well, actually here in Seattle, they had a, um, they had a musical version of, uh, it was a, I think it was a trauma film with a turkey. Oh, Poultrygeist? Poultrygeist. Yes, they had a Poultrygeist musical here in Seattle. Oh, um, really? Uh, yeah, it was like very short one. I haven't heard anything about it since. Well, they even had a Heather's musical. I don't know if you guys remember that. I didn't know there was a musical. Yeah, it, it was on Broadway very, very briefly. I haven't heard from about it since, like I, like with Poultrygeist. So, but yeah, like I said, musicals that aren't necessarily what you would think of when you think musicals, not like Roger Hammerstein or any of those types. We need to think of an acronym for this genre that we're creating. Are we creating it? Well, we're naming it. <laughs> musicals that are based on things that you wouldn't normally think would make a good musical, but they do. Subversicals? Uh, I like that. Subversicals. All right, I'm trademarking it, and you bastards will have to pay me. <laughs> wow, the domain's already been registered by you. Wow, you're fast. Yeah, I'm quick. Yeah, I'm quick. Don't fuck with me, man. Well, you know, there were um, a lot of posters, uh, especially in the opening scene, of what Checker's company made. And I love the titles. Like, I would love, you know, for there to be, I, I don't know, YouTube movies of what these movies would have been. It was um, Stewardesses in Cages, Teenage Sex Mutants, Cheerleaders in Chains, and Kung Fu Sex Slaves. It's oh, like, gotcha. I would see all of those movies. I'm so, I'm so glad you paid attention to that because I completely missed those. It, I really appreciate that the director kind of and the writer put a lot of thought into that, where they didn't just they kind of set the tone even with just the room, you know. Oh, so you it look seemed the like the props, you know, the the more you looked uh, in the backgrounds or the details. There's um during Diana Canova's God, what was the name of the song? Perversion was that mm-hmm. her big number? That um, her hat, I thought it had flowers on it. They were actually fuzzy pink penises. <laughs> all over <laughs> and i love that feel it seems like everyone who was involved was in on it you know it wasn't just a reluctant prop department or you know a costumer painting yeah, by numbers exactly. and, and i i love that um camaraderie to it yeah it definitely didn't feel like everybody was like wet behind the ears and didn't know what the hell they were doing they kind of left that to the bruce kimmel character at the beginning which i hope we get into in a minute because oh my god he was amazing yeah, it, it definitely, everybody was acting like this is commonplace, you know, this is what we do every day, let's just do it. And they weren't acting like, oh my god, what do we do? So I appreciated that they didn't go that route, like so many movies about this kind of thing do. Yeah, there weren't too many. I mean, even when you came to the Ingenue, when you came to Susie, I mean, it wasn't all about her not being able to believe what was going on and just being the innocent flower throughout of it, throughout all of it. It was. I was glad that there was this kind of matter-of-fact, no-nonsense treatment of, of the subject matter, and just people were there to make this movie. Once they figured out who the people were that were going to be cast in this and what their qualifications had to be, 
Richie Cunningham kind of self-selected out of the process. I don't think that he, you know, could actually dance very well, and so that's why he wasn't in the rest of the film. Everybody else was was in it to win it, you know. And I, I love the Brevere performances. I mean, you you talked about Diane Canova; she just gives it. She she lays that. Cuban accent on like nobody's business. I mean, she's doing a, a Carmen Miranda turn up to a hundred kind of a thing. Oh God. I mean, she was like the second coming of Charo there and it was just, I, you know, I forget, you know, there are people that you haven't seen in a while and I forgot how much I absolutely loved her on soap. And then to see her in this, you know, you realize just the spectrum of talent that you didn't see tapped for so long. Oh, she was amazing. The guy who played her boyfriend in the very few scenes that he was in actually kind of definitely made an impression for the short time he was there. He was there as the don't touch her, she's mine kind of overcompensating for something. Oh, and can I say I just loved seeing him because, of course, as soon as I saw him, I was just like, oh, my God, that's the chicken man from <laughs> Escape from New York. You know, the guy that played Romero who just has that right. kind of... I, I didn't... I knew his face, but that crazy, crazy hair and everything. And I know he was one of the main baddies in uh, Assault on Precinct 13 as well, but he didn't have any lines. He's a carpenter kind of staple. Full disclosure, though, I haven't seen any, either of those movies, and I feel really bad about it. I've seen Escape from L.A., but I haven't seen Escape from New York. Oh, my God. Well, if you like camp and kitsch, Escape from L.A. is the movie for you and not Escape from New York. Well, so. you know, any movie where Donald Pleasant's shoots at terrorists yelling, you're the Duke, A number one, a rooftop. I'm like, you know what? I probably should check this out. We, going back to uh, Canova, she was she was almost a proto-Sofia Vergara, in my opinion. Oh, yes. The way she was, you know, overdoing the, the kind of playing it to the hilt Cuban thing, it was like, you know what? This is exactly Sofia Vergara. Maybe Sophia Vergara is just playing an elaborate prank on, on America, and he's, she's actually very well-spoken. Yeah, I wonder if Canova was sitting at the TV the first time she saw Sophia and was wondering, like, wait a minute. Is she she's just stealing my act. Me? Yeah. You know, I liked how they weren't playing the stereotype as a stereotype. They were playing the stereotype for the joke. They weren't going out of pure ignorance. They were going strictly because let's make fun of the stereotype and kind of go with it. Right, it didn't feel like they were making fun of Lat Latina women at all. So it just felt like it was comedy for comedy's sake, rather than being kind of there was no mean spirited feelings in it. I don't think. Well, you could say that for the whole film, actually. Movies that came out back then, especially ones that are kind of subversively comic in that kind of respects, had a bit of an edge, kind of a mean spiritedness to them. And this one definitely didn't feel like that. It really felt like there was actual love in the in the production that you know they weren't they weren't trying to knock anybody they were you know just they were just having fun and so i appreciated the heart that went into it well, yeah, even when it comes to that relationship between the Harry Schechter character and the John Smithy character, I mean, Smithy is foisted upon Schechter by one of uh, his backers, the guy that's played by High Pike, who I always love, and, and people will pr 
probably maybe remember him from his role in Blade Runner, amongst other things. But he was fantastic in Blade Runner as as the club owner, Taffy Lewis. So, yeah, there could have been a real rivalry. There could have been some really bad feelings between the two. But really, it feels it feels a little like Schechter is kind of taking him under his wing. And then after a while, when he realizes that Smithy is pretty hopeless, uh-huh. just rather than doing anything overtly mean to him, I mean, because this could have turned into like, a, I don't know, a police academy prank type of thing or Porky's type of thing. He just gently tries to move him out of the way. Like, why don't you go out and run and get us this? Why don't you get us some donuts? Why don't you pick this up? And then at the end of the day, he ends up getting Smithy laid and that's the best thing for him. It was a great scene, actually. In a terrific scene, and I love that musical number. Well, another, That's a, another great scene with with uh, Smithy was the scene right after Schechter has given him the advice, like when you meet these people, you know, be hard edge, you know, swear at them, kind of give them, and uh, we can work like, together as a poor loving cunt penis team. We'll yeah, do just to make a fucking good bitch of a bastard movie if we all put together and work as poor loving cunt penis team. And I, and I was laughing my ass off at that part because I'm like. That's awesome. The way he played the naivete was brilliant. And it really kind of makes me sad he didn't do kind of more more high profile stuff after this came out. But after I, you know, was watching the behind the scenes stuff, I kind of figured I, I know why. As unfair as it is, I know why. He really wrote actually really good characters and none that were and none that were like throw away. You know, all of them had something to contribute to the film. Well, it seemed like um, a labor of love in a way, but a love of movies because there there were so many aspects of different genres and such. I mean, the four guys, the um, investors at the beginning, especially Benny, oh my God, that voice, it very much struck me as the guys and dolls of Nicely Nicely and it was like that group. And then you get into, you know, the tryouts with the... I, I guess Uber stage people, and it was just so many kind of caricatures of the of these cliches of people that you would encounter in Hollywood or in films. That um, it, it seemed like he loved all of it, and he was just bringing it all together. You're you're exactly right. You know, it, I would love to see more musicals by him. I mean, he wrote all these songs. Gosh, you know the the canon that he must have at home that hasn't seen the light of day. It's just a travesty. He definitely can nail the humor. He definitely knows the timing. He definitely knows where to put a song and how long to make the song without, you know, overstaying its welcome. Because some musicals, the comedic ones, the songs kind of go a little, it's like, okay, we're done. Okay, we get the joke. Move on. Let it go already. Yeah. (laughs) No pun intended, I hope. Yeah. Have Disney talk to him. I'm sure he could make a really damn decent musical of Frozen. Well, they already put penises in all the cartoons, right? So. Oh, yeah. Well, the cover of Little Mermaid. I really, really would like to see more from him. Um, I know this is like 40 years almost after the fact, but yeah, I really would want to know if he's, if he's still got something up his sleeve. Before I forget, I just want to mention the piano player. I think the piano player is one of the great unsung heroes of the film. And I love just the way that he's over there, like muttering to himself and working on the songs and everything. I just, I love that character. And Whenever they cut to him, I mean, again, they know the perfect time to put him into the into the the proceedings. He just always cracks me up, man. Almost little drops 
in the film. They never cut to him for like more than maybe a minute or two. You know, then they go on with the film. But he really does add a lot of really funny things to the film. That goes to Kimmel's writing ability. I mean, writing characters, however small, but still making them matter and purposeful to the plot, no matter how silly the plot is. And I really think that he's got a gift for that. And there's not many writers that could do that. And, you know, you would assume for something called the first nudie musical that it'd be kind of just all over the place. But actually, he does keep it pretty um, uniform. I guess, you know, reading interviews, the making of and all of that, it's funny that there's something that I haven't seen touched on. And yet it's such a huge part of it, I, I suppose, of content wise, even though you don't really notice it. But, you know, there's mention like the jokes about fellatio and all of that. But there are nods to, well, when they said, um, was it a butch dyke? And there's nods to foot fetish, smoking fetish. Two times they mentioned bestiality. And, I mean, there are so many fetishes that are skirted over and touched upon, yet it's ne- no one ever talks about it. And since they don't talk about it, it, it leads me to wonder, you know, we always hear about this dark orgy underbelly of Hollywood, you know, just some things being commonplace that they encounter. I really have to wonder, <laughs> I mean, was, was all of this, um, not unusual to hear about or know about then? Because now I, I think people feel, even if it's a foot fetish, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm really in the know if I know that that exists. Huh. And, and um, that didn't seem to be the feel there. Well, I mean, people think of like the 60s and 70s as a very sexually liberated time. Well, it's like you said earlier, Angela, that, you know, now we're just kind of prudish in a way. So I, I guess maybe it was a, it was, it was of the time and the views on sex and the um, sexual expression. I mean, that's why Deep Throat became this phenomenon is because, you know, people were just people. It was the right place, the right time. So I think that might have been why it was not as mentioned, probably because, you know, like I said, it's probably because of the time it was in. I'm not sure if bestiality was exactly <laughs> of a, a 70s uh, um, thing. Or, yeah. But I do love the title more bang for your buck. <laughs> yeah, definitely was more about I think it was more about the time. But I do. I, I was surprised that um, even though it was subtly done and often a bit covert that it's just what the actors are doing in the background. It's, um, it was incredibly sexually articulate, even though the spotlight wasn't being shined on it. Yeah. Yeah. It might've been, they just wanted to have it as like little off jokes, like not exactly hidden jokes, but off jokes, like people would catch it. Well, I can see this movie when it comes to, that kind of the jokes going on in the foreground, jokes going on in the background, and just what Kimmel uh, has said in interviews, and I think he might even say in this uh, interview that's coming up, this whole idea of how many jokes per minute that you have, how many laughs per minute. And it feels like this is kind of 
along those same lines, I want to say like Kentucky Fried Movie was just about uh, coming out around this time. And this is kind of, I won't say it's a precursor to uh, Airplane, but it definitely feels like it's kind of, you know, uh, lighting that fuse for something like Airplane, where you have so many jokes per minute, you have so many jokes going on in the foreground and the background. And I could watch it today and I'm sure that I would either remember something, see something and, and think that I saw it for the first time or actually see something for the first time because things are so packed in there. And I know Kimmel was definitely making a very concerted effort to fine-tune the hell out of this movie to make sure that you got the maximum number of laughs. Things that they aren't turning the spotlight on but are still funny – I think that's that's terrific, and I think that's something that really you know was was kind of the mark of a good comedy of the day, and something that I think is kind of gone by the wayside these days. It was kind of like it was a parody without actually going to the going into a Zucker kind of thing. It kind of stayed. It was more satiric parody, like it wasn't referencing uh, an exact porno. But yeah, you're right. These days. It's more about throwing it in your face rather than letting the audience discover it for themselves. I mean, I don't want to get into a rant here, but like Freeberg and Seltzer, who, huh. who subtlety, if it hit them in the goddamn face with a <laughs> fucking bat. I'm sorry. I just, those guys really pissed me. Um, you know, it's the parody has definitely gone by the wayside, or at least proper parody has. And you have to look really hard to find decent decent satire now it's really kind of sad because parody was was actually when i was growing up it was one of my favorite genres to watch i mean um if the camera was on behind me you could see a poster of uhf it's one of my favorite comedies of all time and that also had visual gags that you had to look for and didn't just throw references to current pop culture at you but that's not you know because that's not comedy that's reference humor and that's fine for a YouTube clip, but it's not fine for a 90-minute film. I mean, there still are some decent um, satires around. Like, um, I hear Black Dynamite's really good. It is. I hear that's very good. The last decent parody I saw, and I don't know if you guys agree with me, was Not Another Teen Movie. I actually really liked Not Another Teen Movie. I mean, I got a little tired of the uh, the poop jokes, the whole taking a dump on somebody's chest. Yeah, that but was, That was kind of a joke that kind of ran itself into the ground. But otherwise, I mean, it's... So mess with a bull, young man. You get the horns. I'm shaking. You just got another. Good. You through? Not even close, bud. You want another one? Yes. You got it. Good. That's another one. You had enough yet? No. That's another one. So? You just say the word, I'll keep going. Go! Eeny, meeny, miny. Mo. Your mother was a... Ho. He was a famous clown. Bobo. Mitch, cut it out. You know, because I had seen The Breakfast Club many, many times, and even before the movie came out, that kind of seemed funny to me when he's saying, are you through? No. Do they realize that he's rhyming? Can they... Did, did John Hughes... <laughs> and when they mentioned it in another team movie, I'm like, yeah, I'm so glad I'm not the only one who caught that. That's another one. Me, I was a teen movie connoisseur, so that was just the perfect movie for me. So that was good parody because, again, in that, even in the background, there was subtle, you know, kind of jokes to it that you had to look for. And in this movie, like Angela mentioned earlier, the the posters, you know, I, I would assume he didn't expect the audience to be paying attention to the posters. But, you know, some probably didn't thought that was really funny. And you're right, Angela, it was, you know, 
it's it always is what's matter is the little details. Well, I I think too, you know, you're creating a world. Mm-hmm. You want it to you want to be as you know submerged in it as possible, and and I you know I, it kind of is a throwback for me uh, of the feel that it, it very much had a stage feel, you know, like the yuck yuck kind of jokes and the oh. pauses, the timing, you know. And for that, when you have all these hands on deck creating the sets and, and you know, a lot of the stage people are there during the rehearsal, so their minds are always going. And I think, um, you know, we lose that so much with CGI and all of that. You don't have all these hands putting in their two cents here and there and tucking it into the folds. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. And. You're right. It did feel like a stage production um, because these people were kind of working together as a for a whole rather than the sound or lighting or the you know set design. They were all kind of working together, which I you know thought was kind of interesting. Um, I know that's probably not how it really works, but it was very interesting. I thought it was really well, really well done. I mean, really, the whole movie kind of feels like uh, an Andy Hardy, you know, let's put on a show kind of a thing, and that's it feels like everyone is coming together, whether whether it's just in front of the camera, that's the the attitude, but it feels like it translated behind the camera too. I mean, this was definitely, and when you look at it, this is a low budget movie, but it's not a cheap movie. You know, it, it it doesn't feel like it was thrown together. It feels like it was very well crafted. I mean, to those posters and to the jokes in the background and all of these things. I mean, it, you can tell that there was definitely a craft here. And all these years later, I mean, this is 40 years later, talking about this movie, and it feels very, very fresh. This does not feel like it's, it, it, well, obviously the outfits and everything, but the humor still plays, the songs still play, the attitude still plays. And this is, you know, here we are kind of bemoaning not having more from Bruce Kimmel. I mean, would we do that with every movie that we see from, you know, 1976? Eh, maybe, maybe not. I don't think so. So this is definitely one of those where it's just like, wow, this this thing really stood the test of time. It definitely does. I mean, I'm surprised how quickly it moved and how well it kept my attention for, you know, for the humor. I mean, it made me laugh more than I expected it to. It, the title might be a little bit off-putting for some people, which is why it probably doesn't have the following that it should because calling something the first new musical, it might, people might just, you know, pass it off as just another silly sexploitation flick from the seventies. When in fact, it's really something special and really something more than that. I was surprised uh, during the behind the scenes when they said it was like, what, 125,000 was the budget. Really? That, that was the budget. <laughs> wow. It's impressive how they use that. Um, well, they really stretched the dollars. They definitely did. But then again, Maybe $125,876 is probably a lot different than $125,000 Yeah, I'm trying to think what the budget was for the original Star Wars, and I'm just like, what's that, $7 million, $9 million? It definitely wasn't, you know, $150,000, $200,000. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't Abrams-sized, let's just... No. Um, well, and I loved how careful they were, you know, even with the choreography, you know, it was supposed to be the play within a play, with people who presumably weren't especially talented because they're making a movie at this, you know, decrepit studio. But I like that you could tell, you know, the women could tap dance, they could do things, but nothing was overdone. And and I think a lot of times, you know, details like that are missed because you want 
the best production in in the background you're going to have good dancers but they didn't you know they had everybody was sort of kept on a leash of don't be too good with the dancing don't yeah. you know because i think that was the that was that was the point because it was low budget so the dancing right. was very low budget it wasn't like a busby berkeley uh 1930s choreographed into a pool musical and actually the dancing for what it for the you know for what you say it's actually not bad i mean oh no it wasn't bad it was just i you know there were like you know some of the choreography would be some of the people would be a little out of sync and then it was like oh, that's so perfect and someone so, had to make sure that's how it came through and, and that attention to detail i mean i think that's why something stands the test of time because you know, someone put that much energy, like the whole cast put that much energy in. But of course, you know, when a person is slightly out of sync and things, it's bad that they're still a better dancer than I am. And what's with the name Eunice? I, I, you know, it didn't occur to me until I saw this that um, there are so many things with the name Eunice in it from the 70s. I haven't heard that name in a movie in years. I haven't heard that name in a movie. Oh, God, I think I've only heard it in like one or two other films. Well, you know, it strikes me as like a popular name during that era, and now it's gone. Well, wasn't one of the people on Soap was Eunice, too, wasn't it? God, I gotta go back and revisit Soap. I mean, I remember loving it so much when it was on. Yeah, You're gonna hate me when you do, Mike, because you, you just can't not watch the whole thing. They show reruns, uh, they've been showing reruns on Logo, and I need, actually probably should catch up on those, because I remember enjoying it when I was... I think I, it was on when I was really, really, really young. I think my parents used to watch it. But yeah, that that also was very good satire of, of soap operas. Again, uh, going back to that. I should check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer Salt played Eunice Tate. So there was another Eunice oh, in that. That's a dirty sounding name. It's like a, a dirty old maid <laughs> that has way more experience than you'd think. I'm sure my Aunt Agnes would agree with you on that. Well, I, I think we should all go watch Soap and then meet back for another podcast on that. Definitely. I, I would be up for that. All right. We are going to take a break and um, I guess go watch a whole lot of Soap. And we're going to play an interview with Bruce Kimmel after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com Hey, Projection Booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. 
Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. I wanted to know a little bit about your background as far as when you decided to get into acting. Because not only were you an actor, but you're also a, a singer, songwriter, all these things. It was early, and, you know, I never wanted to do anything else. I couldn't have even imagined it. I mean, from the time I was, like, four, <laughs> I just used to walk around my house and pretend I was being filmed. At a very early age, I remember making a camera out of my father's cardboard that came in the shirts. <laughs> so I taped together a little camera, which I would take on location with me. You know, I was a very strange child. And uh, so I would shoot my, you know, I would hold this camera at arm's length, like a selfie today, <laughs> hold it at arm's length and, and pretend I was filming me walking to the market or I don't know what my neighbors thought or people in my neighborhood, but that was, so I, that's all I ever wanted to do. I would just pretend I was on TV and pretend I was in a movie and at home and anywhere else. So it was always there. And then I started writing at an early age, even in junior high school, probably, and then songwriting in high school. And it was like that. So it was early. Were your folks pretty supportive? No, they were not. Okay. <laughs> How else to say? <laughs> they were about as unsupportive as you could be until I started working, at which point they were very proud and very supportive. A little late in the game. Where did you grow up at? I grew up in Los Angeles in a great little neighborhood. Spent most of my childhood in a movie theater. Uh, you know, we had three theaters within five minutes of I could walk to. Saw everything that played. And I just, I had a lot of fun as a kid. I was strange. I had very few friends. And I got along with me very well, but not to other people. <laughs> well, when did you find start to find other people who shared your interests? I had one friend in junior high school, turned out to be not such a good friend, but, you know, he was a, a really close friend of mine for a while. 
but not that interested in 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 show business or acting or anything. Probably in my first year of high school, although I took acting class, I always forget this, but I took acting class when I was in junior high, my last year of junior high. I went to a acting, uh, my, my uncle Al Kingston was an agent, a writing agent. He was with the Swanson Agency. It's a very famous agency here. And so he put me together in this acting class run by a guy named um, Jerry Bloom, I think his name was. And it, it was fun, this class. He didn't really teach acting, but he taught you how to behave on interviews and stuff, which was really helpful. And in that class was somebody I had a mad crush on, which was the little girl who had played Amaryllis in the Music Man movie. And so I'm still in touch with her these days, even. And uh, so that was fun. And then I started high school right after that, and then I was just, it was all drama after that. I mean, just drama, like a class. Not like typical high school drama. Yeah, exactly, because I didn't hang around with those people. You know, I was in drama from the first minute I was there, and we did a lot of shows there. And I discovered theater while I was, you know, I started going to plays all the time there, both the major touring shows that came into L.A. and the small theaters and it was a great time. It was really great. Now, I know the seeds for First Nitty Musical were sown way earlier than 1976. Can you tell me how that kind of came about? I went to New York after I finished college here. I decided I'll never work in film and TV because look what I look like. So I will go to New York to be an actor on the Broadway stage. And so I left at the end of 1968 and moved there. Auditioned for a fair amount of stuff, considering nobody knew who I was, and I had no agent. But I didn't sort of get anything, and it was just, it was very difficult in New York, very hard to live there. You know, it was uh, I was a newlywed, and my then wife was pregnant, got pregnant right away, even though she was on the pill. So who knows what that means? <laughs> and. Uh, so we, um, in, in the summer, I got a little summer stock thing, doing stuff the world I want to get off, and that was fun. But when I came back, I had, we had no money. You know, she was working in the bank, and you know, six months along. So I finally got a job, like a day job, or well, it wasn't really a day job, but it was at a place called Commercial Analysts on the east side, 43rd Street. Uh, and you went there. It was all actors, all out-of-work actors, because you could make your own hours, and you would do surveys. You would call people and take surveys. That was our job. And it paid decently, and, you know, it was very lax there and fun. And, in fact, I was so good there, they loved me, that they offered me, like, a full-time job for, like, $15,000 a year, which it would now would be, like, $50,000 a year. And it was tempting, and I turned it down to come back to L.A. But I met a lot of wacky people there. And we would occasionally, I was very amused by what were then called nudie movies. There was no porno at that time. And they were like crazy little funny, funky movies. And they played on 42nd Street or 8th Avenue, and we would go to them and just howl with laughter. And that's where the seeds were sown. And I, I kept saying to everybody, we need to do a musical version of one of these movies. 
wouldn't that be grand? And so I wrote songs and we would sing them and the thing. And I have, it's on the Blu-ray. I have the original, somebody did a little poster, fake poster for the movie. So that's how far back it went. So it was 1969, that was. How did you and Sidney Williams first meet? We went to school together, uh, LACC, Los Angeles City College. Uh, so we started there in, it's hard to believe, uh, more than 50 years ago now. But um, we started there in 65, September of 65. And we were just, we were very close right off the bat and just loved each other and did all kinds of shows there. And then, you know, we always just hung out together and did things together. And when I told her about this, when I came back to L.A., in 1970, she had just gotten back from doing Travels with my aunt. That was her big breakthrough. And I was telling her, and she flipped out for this idea. And at the time, she was, I don't know if she was dating him yet, but she was working for him, maybe uh, this casting director named Fred Roos, who ended up uh, being one of the producers of The Godfather and American Graffiti and all those pictures. couple of guys. So she knew all those people. And she kept saying, we, got, we can get Jack Nicholson. We'll do it under fake names. We'll shoot it in eight millimeter. And uh, it was funny. And it, but it, that went on for years, you know, just laughing about it and talking about it and what it would be. So, But she never wavered in wanting to do it, I will tell you. There was never even, you know, she was pretty well known when we did the film because of graffiti and conversation and a lot of TV. But... She never wavered. There was never a question in her mind about it. So how did you finally get this thing off the ground? Well, interesting you should ask that, because I just found 15 years worth of Screen Actors Guild day runners, if you know what those are, little appointment books. And I went through them because I have a really good memory about things, but this told me every date of everything. And we got serious about it in 1972. I met Mark Haggard in 1972. Alan Abelou, who plays George in the film, had worked for Mark and introduced us. And Mark had been thinking about doing a, 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 a musical, adult musical. And he knew I had this. So Alan told him, well, you got to talk to Bruce. He's got this project. It's ready to go. And it wasn't, of course, ready to go because there was no script. <laughs> there was the songs. We didn't even know what it was. And I met him and we got along. You know, he's a very weird fellow, but we got along well and we started talking about it. And, uh, you know, we talked about what it should be. And at that point, you know, it, the original idea was just to do one and it was going to be called Come, Come Now. and but we both realized you got to hang this thing on a story. So we both loved the Warner Brothers, you know, 42nd Street and Footlight Parade and all those backstage movies. And that's what it became. It's literally Footlight Parade. We had I, all during 72 and 73, we had meetings and meetings and me, meeting the weirdest people you ever, ever would come in contact with. All of them wanted to do the movie. Nothing ever happened. And then in we got some real, real strong interest from somebody. I remember. I can't remember who it was. but So I actually, in early 74, wrote the script. And when you said you were meeting with people, were these potential backers? Yes. Um, wacky, wacky people. People named Flip. That's like, number one guy named Flip, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and unless it's Flip Wilson, you're probably not doing too well. Guido and, you know, strange types. So 
I wrote the script, and Mark, you know, loved it, and he added some things and subtracted some things, and I mean, the basic stuff that's really good in the movie was always there, and and then we found a producer, Mark had, had written a movie, I think he had written it, a movie called Black Eye, <laughs> which was a black exploitation film written by a white USC person. It was directed by, who was it? Jack Arnold, I think, the shrinking man. And it was produced by Jack Reeves. And so Mark knew Jack. And Jack, her, you know, met with Mark and I, and he loved this idea, too. And so we all sort of came together, and Jack got uh, Peter, I can't remember the names now, uh, our executive producers, Peter Brown and Stu Phelps, uh, involved, and they knew people, you know, because they were in management. So over in the court in 1974, I just, I, we had a lot of meetings. I have notes about going to Vegas to play the songs, and, you know, I was playing the songs a lot for people. And at one point, George Sidney, we played it for George Sidney, the director of Bye Bye Birdie, and a Kitten with a Whip, or, or whatever, you know, his Ann Martin, the swinger, I think it was, and Showboat. And you know, he wanted to direct this picture, and I, you know, Mark and I are no, I don't think that's a good idea. And uh, little by little, in the in, you know, summer of 74 to the end of 74, Stu and Jack and Peter found investors, and it was, I remember, it's $15,000 each, and the budget was $150,000. So they found, they actually found nine investors or eight investors. So we had almost all the money, like 120 grand. Based on the 120 grand, we were going to go ahead and hope to get the rest of it. And so 75 turned, and we, we started in 75. I, I went off to New York to do an acting thing. And when I got back, we began in earnest and we were at, we actually did casting in 74, in November of 74, because it was still going to be non-union at that point. And Cindy and I were going to change our names. And then we sat down and go, why do we want to change our names? This is really funny and it'll be fun. And so we went set, we decided to go SAG and I think SAG at that point had just implemented some kind of lower budget thing where it made it, we could do it. It's a little lower, not much, not like today, free, but it was a little lower. We had cast some of it in the late 74, but only the backers from that casting session. So that's why those guys are a little lesser than the rest of the cast because <laughs> they were all non-union at the time and and uh, we never it never occurred to us to recap because I would have you know I my, one of my best friends was Mike Lembeck and his father was just the great you know actor Harvey Lembeck I would have asked him I you know I would have gone to really good people you know my friend Margaret Willock's father Dave Willock was a great character actor. I would have gone to those people, but we had these guys, unfortunately. Not for unfortunately, they were all fine, you know. But but then we can and in, in I guess it was in like uh, March. We we were at the uh, Hollywood Legion, uh, which is the building where Jimmy Kimmel shoots his show. Now isn't that ironic? So we cast there. You know, it was a, like a Catholic thing. You just they didn't have any idea what we were doing in there, and uh, 
so we casted there and we rehearsed there and it was it all fell together very very fast and then right from there we went to Laird uh, not Laird the uh, producer studio where we had offices and shot the movie and we started on May 5th now were you always supposed to be part of the cast I was I wrote it for me um I I just you know I knew you know at the time we began I was going to star in it and write it and Mark was the director. Somewhere mm, a couple of months before we started shooting, everybody realized that that was not a good idea to have him solo direct because the actors were never going to listen to him. Well, and you directed actors in plays before. He had directed actors in film before. You know, he had done um, softcore adult films. But he's not an a, a, a actor's director, and uh, they would not have listened to him, <laughs> I can tell you. And he he doesn't know how to talk to actors. It's just it's very that's a tricky thing. And I do, and they were all my friends, so we just decided right off the bat that I would co-direct. Talking about your the backers in the film, I have to say I was very happy to see High Pike show up. Yes, hi. Do you know the, the, that story? Have you heard that story? How he came to be in the film? Was it something to do with an auto accident? Yeah, <laughs> I gave him the role because I remembered years earlier in nineteen. 19- I want to say I had a little Honda 50 motor scooter to use to get from my house to school and I was driving up Robertson the street called Robertson and some idiot woman did a U-turn in front of me and I smashed into her and flew flew off the thing and broke my arm and he saw it he was doing a show at the theater on Robertson that was right in front of where it happened he and his friend uh, the guy who wrote I think it was a show called Big Time Buck White. He thankfully came. She she lied. She was trying to lie about what happened, even after admitting to me it was her fault. But thankfully, he and this other fellow, Joseph Dolan Tuoti. How do I remember these names? Oh, my God. Joseph Dolan Tuoti. How would you ever remember a name like that? Uh, she, uh, they came to court. And testified. So I never forgot Joseph Dolan Duoti and High Pike. And how would you ever forget High Pike anyway? And and so he was part of those non-union auditions. He came in. And I said, you know, hi, you did this for me years ago. You're in. I said to him right at the audition. Can you tell me how did uh, Stephen Nathan come to be in the film? Had you worked with him before? I had not, and um, I, I don't know that I remember how he actually got in touch with us. But he had is probably through friends because I knew people who were, who did Godspell. We had the the hardest time. You know, it was originally offered to Henry Winkler, who wisely turned it down, and then Archie Hahn who turned it down not so wisely, but who would not have been as good as Stephen. And then Stephen came along, and I don't remember how he got to us, but the minute I met him, I just fell in love with him. And he was so straight and so perfect, but charming and funny. Yeah, you guys had a real good chemistry going on there. Yeah, he's just, he's quirky, but a leading man quirky. And, you know, the the fact that he had no career, really, is surprising to me, except that now he's more wealthier than anybody. <laughs> As he produces bones, 
and writes bones. He was great. And I, he didn't throw, show up for Cindy. I know it wasn't for Cindy. So maybe his agent just found it. I mean, we were in all the casting things. But however he found us, it was just instant. We just offered it to him right on the spot because he had done Godspell and he had done 1776 already. Yeah, it's such an unusual story as far as the whole idea of, you know, basically having three leads instead of just the man and woman that you expect to come together. But having you three up there, uh, Stephen, yourself, and Cindy, it was a very interesting mix. It was. And the funny, uh, another funny thing, I don't, I don't know if I've ever actually told this, but I originally was not up there with them in terms of billing. And after we kept screening the movie and getting the reaction we got to it, everybody said, you got to be up there with them. And I, I, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that, but I was talked into it and I'm happily talked into it. And, uh, because it really is the three of us, we're who you root for. And it's why the film I think has lasted all these years is because you really like us and you want us to come out on top. And that's how movie, that's how a lot of cult movies, that sort of don't stand the test of time fail because they don't have that likability, you know, where you're actually rooting for people. Well, yeah, and your character, the way that the character is foisted upon Harry Schechter, it's like you could have been anybody coming in and you could have just, you know, you you kind of are an income poop, but you're sincere about it. Yeah, I mean, he's very lovable. <laughs> you could have been the villain of the piece, though, just as easily. Absolutely, if anybody else had played it. But I knew what I, I, knew what I needed to do to make a, a role for myself that would get noticed which was the idea to just give myself something for, first of all, that was second nature for me to play, but that I knew people would laugh at. You, you tell a very funny story in your book, uh, There's Mel, There's Woody, and Then There's You, about Nick von Sternberg, who was your gaffer on oh, the yeah. film. totally offended when I walked in that outfit. He said, you're making fun of my father. <laughs> I said... I, and at that time, I have to tell you, I did not know who his father was. I had not seen any of those movies. I am totally smitten with his father now, you know, who I think was one of the great, great fetishists and directors of all time. But yeah, I didn't, I had never seen one of those movies, any of them. You were playing the prototypical director at that point, which is funny that it's dad. But he was very, he thought we were mocking Joseph von Sternberg. And I said, it's hard to mock those we don't know, Nick. And, uh, uh, but it was funny. But there was, it was just, it was the wildest shoot ever. It was so fun. It rides that line between being dirty and being clean. Was there any difficult as far as some of the nudity that was being asked for at the at the time? You know, uh, for the most part, absolutely not. The, all the chorus girls, they couldn't wait <laughs> to do it. And these were like working actors. I mean, it was done. Nancy, I can't remember her last name. Nancy, um, one of the dark, one of the brunette girls had been in Rollerball already with Khan, Nancy, somebody, I can't remember. Maybe. But she had been in Rollerball. The girl who's called Linda, I can't remember what she calls herself in the movie. She uses a fake name, but her name is Linda Hoxett. And she had been on, you know, in stage shows everywhere. She was on the Dean Martin show. You know, they all were kind of working girls, but they just thought it was so funny. 
with those weird costumes that Tom Rasmussen made them and chewing gum. And they just, they thought it was, and it was innocent because I'm, you know, that's who I am. I am John Smithy, you know, in that movie. I wouldn't, you know, it was hard for me to look at anybody naked and I'm just like that person. So, so that was the, the air on the set was always innocent, but I'll tell you on the first day of shooting our AD, uh, Oh my God! I can remember Joseph Dolan Tuoti, but not Ed's last name. But uh, he was also the associate producer. Uh, but he did such a horrible job in scheduling, and we were all too stupid to to notice it. So on the the first day of shooting, he starts with a nude scene. It's the scene with Alan Abelou and the, uh, Mary Larue where she throws him off the bed, and so she's instantly uncomfortable. Like you walk on the set and it's all tension because she doesn't want to do this first thing off the bat. And I took her aside and we laughed about it. We talked and it was all fine. But you don't schedule a, a nude scene first thing on the first day. It's really bad. But after that, never a problem. I think at one point there was a photographer on the set and somebody, some people got upset and we threw them off. And I don't know even who they were. You know, probably Jack Reeves brought them on. But uh, no, it's everybody kind of understood the spirit of it. It was never going to be with me. You know, we've been for years. I've been trying to do a stage version of this, and we've done a couple of readings. I did an adaptation with my friend David Wechter, and a lot of new songs in it. And uh, and uh, when we were when it looked like it was actually going to go in the early two thousands, and I had a Broadway producer attached. I actually was meeting with directors and stuff, and I would know instantly if they were right or wrong for it, because it's just the tone. You know, you either get the tone or you don't. And it's like the original choreographer I talked to said, oh, I, I want to tease, you know, the girls coming into that first number. I want to tease. I said, if you use the word tease, you're the wrong guy. I said, the whole point is we don't tease. We just open the door. There they are. And it's got to be funny. It's not sexy. You don't hire sexy people. You know, the tone is everything. And it was, you're walking that line throughout the whole suit because at the time, in 1975, when we shot it, there had never been anything like that on the screen, really. And, I mean, with that much consistent dirt. But it's all funny dirt. And so you get away with it. Because it's funny, and, and and there's this innocence. I mean, people, the reviewers back then, you know, said it's like watching a college show, and 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 they're right, and it, that's why it's good. Uh, you know, it would not have been good if we were all, you know, fifty making this film. I can tell you, it's just that that's what our saving grace was: is that we were all sort of good people, Cindy and me. But you know, it's with her. You give her stunt cock, and she just never wants to. To stop saying it. I mean, in the script, it's twice, you know, she must say it 40 times, whatever she says, because she just kept coming to me. She says, can I say it again? I want to say it again. But, you know, is that dirty stun cock not coming out of her mouth? Yeah, was there any concern? Because this was right around the time that she was uh, Shirley on Laverna Shirley. We shot before that. They did their first guest shot on Happy Days, which is where those characters came from. I think in... September, right around the time we were previewing the movie. 
and it was they were such a sensation on happy days they came and did a few more of those and then they did their own show and i think that show went on the air in like november or october soon really soon thereafter or maybe the happy days was in the summer and it went on and i, I don't know it's very quick or maybe it went on in january i don't know i always thought we shot the dancing dildo scene in at the end of 75 but it, it's not <laughs> having the day runners told me all of this. Uh, so we really shot it in like uh, January, late January. She, you know, and that, well, that led to the downfall of the movie, of course, her having that show, but oh yeah, no one could have known predicted that that show would be on the air, but as soon as it was, and as soon as it was a smash hit and Paramount was our distributor at that point, <laughs> they didn't want to know from this movie at all because she's in the family hour <laughs> And they have what is essentially maybe one of the hardest R-rated films ever. I mean, we barely got got the R, even though it, it was always an R. I mean, what's in this movie that wouldn't be an R? But it took five weeks to get the R because they kept saying there's one too many fuck words. <laughs> or I think we had to cut two fucks and two thrusts of the stunt cock and Mary. That, that that finally got us our R. But we had to screen that film seven times for them. And sometimes we would say we made edits that we actually hadn't made. And they would go, oh, that's much better. Speaking of Happy Days, you were on Happy Days as well a couple times. Uh, long before Cindy, yeah. Uh, early, their first season, their first. Before they went to, to three camera. I did two. And it was bef- just before the season they went to three camera. I think you were in a couple of my favorite episodes because you were in the the Howdy Doody one. Yeah, I, which I don't remember at all. You know, I've never seen that episode since I shot. And I, I have the DVD. I should watch it. But the other episode I've seen many times, which I really love because I got to play a bad guy. <laughs> were you like a, a card shark in that one? Yeah. Okay. And I, okay, I remember. And then Howard ends up taking you down towards the yeah. end, doesn't he? And, you know, that was shot in 74, probably. I think it was 74. Was that show on in 73? I think it was 74. Yeah, well, whatever the first season, I did one the first season and one the second season, and they went to three camera. I, you know, I can't remember. Some, some things are sharp and some things aren't. But, the, uh, you know, I, I got to be friendly with Ron, and there, you know, he was so enamored that we had this deal to make this movie, which is why he came and did the cameo, because he wanted so badly to direct. And he just was so, like, he was thrilled that we got this deal. And, you know, and he was close with Cindy because of graffiti. But, but you know, I got very close with all of those people, Jerry Paris and Henry and and uh, Gary and that whole family. Can you tell me, what was it like working with uh, Diana Canova? Well, again, I went to, uh, she was at City College after I had graduated, but I used to come back there all the time and do sh- stuff and do shows. So I came back uh, in, I think, 72 and 72 or 3 and did a musical called Feast about food. And she was a student there, and so was Debbie uh, Shapiro, who ended up being Debbie Gravett, being a Tony winner. And so I cast her in Feast, and she was I didn't know who she was. She was Dee Dee Rivero at that point. She wasn't even using Canova. And so she said, do you want, you want to come over for dinner? She said to me one night, I said, she said, you'll meet my mother, Judy. <laughs> I said, Judy Rivero? And I said, sure, I'll meet Judy Rivero. She goes, no, it's Judy Canova. I said, Judy Canova? I said, 
grew up with Judy Canova. And then we got to be really, really close, Judy and I. I loved her. So it was, she's great to work with. She is so smart and so funny. And I wrote, you know, that, the character I wrote for her in Feast is the character she plays in the musical. Basically, it's a character, the character in Feast is Juanita. I made her a little dirtier in, in Duty Musical. Uh, but yeah, it can, I just took that character and the character Alan Abelou plays right out of that, that musical. Now, did you take any songs out of that musical? No, I did not. Everything for the movie was either written in the New York era, you know, all the little songs. So, in 1969, I would have written Orgasm, Lesbian Butch Dyke, I'll Kick You With Boots, which isn't in the movie, um, whatever those come come now, any, any of those small numbers, they, those were all written originally. Then stuff like the, the title song and the lights and the smiles and all of those other songs were new. The only song that came from something else was Honey, What You Doing Tonight which came from a musical version of a Plantis play that I wrote called The Minecraft Twins. And I, that, I just stole it from there. One more person I wanted to ask you about was Susan Stewart. Oh, my God. I, we looked for her so hard for the uh, DVD extras, and we can't find her anywhere, because I don't know if that was her real name or not. You know, who knows? These people are, and all we really knew is she worked at A and M Records, like in some department there. But she also, you know, she's in Farewell, My Lovely, as a, a nude lesbian or something. And uh, she was the greatest godsend because, as you read in the book, it was somebody else originally. I tell you, you know, some people have it, and she just came in to meet us, and I said, "Oh my God, great, perfect." Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, that's who she is. And she was so, you couldn't have asked for anybody to be funnier than her. I mean, it was just, you knew when you were shooting that stuff, it was gold. And God, I would love to know where she is today. Of course, she'd be 65, but she was incredible. I mean, she was incredible. Yeah, her singing scales is just one of my favorite moments. Yeah, she's, it was, it, she's, genius her timing i mean it was, i didn't have to say anything to her i mean you know what do you have to say to people who are good you know i mean that's the joy of being a director who knows how to cast is you don't have to direct i love the stories that you that you told in your memoir as far as the way that you would cut the film and test it and kept you know retesting it and everything that sounded like a great process well it was fascinating because you know as you remember you know i we got this assemblage by our Academy Award winning uh, <laughs> editor it was so awful of course it probably in the scheme of things wasn't but I nobody told me what an assemblage was so I hated it <laughs> because I didn't know better I didn't know he just strung all the scenes together roughly you know but it was just so unfunny and it was you know two and a half hours long you want to kill yourself <laughs> Once he was out of the picture, and we, you know, I had never been in a cutting room before. I didn't know anything about this. So Stephen Nathan was with, with. We would go there every night or every day, and work with the assistant editor. And we just started with scene one. And what I would do is I would finish a reel and take it to the, their screening room, which was an in-house screening room, and invite friends of mine. 
And if they laughed, we were fu- we locked it. And if they didn't, I took it back and recut it again. And where it was especially helpful was in my stuff. Because, you know, when you're cutting yourself and you don't know anything about film other than what you've seen, you know, I couldn't, when we saw his assemblage, I, you know, and I tell in the book is, is I thought I had ruined, in fact, long before the assemblage. I mean, I'd seen dailies of that, that's a big speech, the cursing speech. And I thought, oh my God, I've ruined my funniest thing. It's terrible. You know, I just watched it and I said, oh, it's terrible. This is the worst acting in the history of film. And so I reshot it and that was worse. And so I said, well, we'll just live. I guess we'll either cut it out or we'll live with it, you know, as it is, see how it plays. And sure enough, in the assemblage, you know, he cuts it like you would cut, you would cut it. I'm on screen a lot. And it wasn't funny. It was just terrible. And so I cut that reel and I didn't really change much in that speech because I didn't know enough to change much. And we took it down, and everything around it got a huge laugh, so we, we knew we had done really well. And that laid there. And I said, you know, if we're going to keep this in the movie, just get the fuck off of me. Just show other people. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe maybe it's funny if they're looking at me. I don't know anything about film, but just get me the fuck off the screen. <laughs> and so we put in, like, two cutaways and screened it, and then it got laughs. I said, oh, I see. I see. I said, here's what you do. Have me on the screen for about 12 seconds and everything else is reaction. And then, you know, we made one more cut and people were falling out of their chairs. And that's the power of editing. That was the greatest comedy lesson I ever learned. Yeah, it sounds like it was quite a crash course for you. Oh, the editing was, absolutely. You know, I had a sense of, you know, and I had Mark, you know, to sh- in the shooting of it. Plus, we rehearsed for two weeks. You know, where I had a viewfinder and I started seeing what I liked and what I didn't like. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't, it's not a, it's like a Scorsese movie, but I mean, it, <laughs> the setups are at least normal. And, uh, but it was in the editing that I, I learned everything about comedy editing. You know, when you should cut away, when you should be on somebody. Fascinating. Fascinating. Cut something a million different ways. Before Paramount kind of shut down the movie, how was it received when it finally came out? From the time we took it to, I think it was Glendale, for the very first preview, long before Paramount was involved, in September of 75, when we were searching for a distributor. We took it to this theater, I think it was the Rialto in Glendale, showed it was, you know, it was the the edited picture, you know, the the awful one-light dailies that you edit together. So it looked like, you know, you step on that film and it's got dirt and splice marks and, you know, there's no opticals. So, and that's, that was the picture. And you put up a little, you know, disclaimer at the beginning. This is what you're about to see. And the sound is separate from the picture. And we showed it there. And that's the first time, you know, an audience had ever seen that. We didn't know what the hell Cindy was sitting next to me and like digging her nails into me. We were just petrified because who knows, you know, and the screen is like fucking huge. And I, you know, I'm a TV actor up till then. I've never seen myself on a movie screen, a 50 foot movie screen. It's like shocking. And the movie starts and the first scene happens and it's, you know, the first scene is not ideal, but you know, about, 
I would say at the point Cindy enters with her little tea cart, they started laughing pretty good. <laughs> and then, you know, the what the fuck are you talking about line got a huge laugh. And then you're kind of deadly for a little teeny bit while the plot kicks in. But the minute the auditions scene started, you from that point till the end of the film, you could not hear anything in that theater. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Screaming. I mean, and I'm not making this up. I just, Cindy and I were looking at each other with our mouths on the floor. The two, we had like a row of, of uh, sort of 25, 30 year old guys and girls in front of us. I thought they were going to die. They were laughing so hard. They were stomping their feet, screaming with laughter. This was a full house. And that audition scene and my speech and, you know, all those moments. And, of course, Dancing Dildos wasn't in it at that point. But, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. Nobody could believe it. And every preview was like that. Just as in every preview when the Eunice character, the script girl, got, had sang her song, everybody left the theater and went and got popcorn and, and came back. So <laughs> we kept it in as long as I could take that and then I cut it out. But... Um, so that was unbelievable. And we took it, I think we previewed four or five times like that in that year. And then uh, the final previews were uh, in New York. I took it to New York, which is the last time that uh, Where's the Man was ever in the film. And we previewed with Love and Death. And that was September 75. And it, it went okay there. But then we came back and did the same preview in L.A., in Westwood with Love and Death, and we got more laughs than Love and Death. I kid you not. It was unbelievable. My father was at that tree. He couldn't believe it. It was this, again, it was a repeat, you know, people stopping and screaming, and, and, and it was a much tighter film by then, and they just loved it. And Paramount bought the film right after that. So the reaction was, was amazing. It was amazing. Then when we, then we shot Dancing Dildos and put that in the movie. And I was able to cut out the, like the six minutes in the movie that didn't get a laugh, you know. God forbid, you know, today you're lucky if you get one laugh every 30 minutes. But in those days you had to get it every two minutes or you weren't a hit. So we cut out the dead six minutes and put in Dancing Dildos and that was like a smash right from the get-go. And then we, you know, it started previewing around just before we opened here. But, you know, it, it, it didn't really have previews here before it opened in other cities. So we got the trades, re reviews came in, and they were horrifying, as you know, from the book. Uh, and I was ready to kill myself. I, and I would have probably if I hadn't been shooting a pilot. But luckily, literally the day I read them, uh, after I finished shooting what I was shooting, I drove to a newsstand and bought newspapers from all the cities where we'd opened because I had a list of all the cities. So Portland and, and uh, Dallas and you know, wherever it was, like eight or nine cities. Every review was a rave. I mean, you know, and I said, well, which, which ones should I believe? The bad ones or the good ones? I said, I'm just going to believe the good ones. And uh, that made me feel a lot better. And then, then we knew it, you know, because they tried to sneak it into those cities without showing it. You know, it's like today, you know, when they don't want the critics to see it, they don't show it to them and hope they'll get past the opening. So they never showed it. The critics had to go pay to see it at the movie theater, and it worked in our favor. And they said, why is Paramount trying to hide this movie? It's fantastic. 
and they were comparing it to Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. So, you know, what else can you ask for? <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. How did the movie affect your career then after that? I mean, that was uh, it was a pretty huge release when it well, happened. You know, it, I would I would have to say, in all honesty, it killed my career, which it should not have done. It should have made me a star, and it should have made me exactly what the title of my book is, because that's what the head of Paramount told me, and and it should have made me that. But because of this whole Laverne and Shirley thing, things got really ugly. And because nobody counseled me well, I went public with it in the trades, and I got blacklisted, basically. I mean, they could call it gray listing, whatever you want to call it. I stopped working. It's very clear in these day runners, it's unbelievable. Because I'm going on pilot after pilot, and the producers want me, and they love me, and ABC won't let them use me. So, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> It was, you know, in, I couldn't have been prouder of the movie. And when we finally got it away from Paramount and it came out through the other distributor, we were huge. You know, we played three and a half months in one theater in New York. And the week we went wide, as you know, we were the fourth highest grossing picture in the thing. And the way the trades said that is, this must be awfully embarrassing to Paramount, <laughs> you know, which made it even worse for me. It was a career killer. I, I, I hate to say it. I mean, I kept working. I never, I always think I stopped working totally, but I, I worked consistently until I felt like giving it up, but not like it should have been, you know, and, and it was, it was painful back then because, you know, we did it for, you know, I mean, I wrote this role so it would make me into something, you know, and I could have a career and it should have led to another writing and directing and acting gig. And it, you know, it took six years for that to happen. Yeah. I always wondered why there was such a gap between first nudie musical and the creature wasn't nice. I mean, because nobody would do anything. It was like, you know, it was a cult hit right out of the gate, but you know, cult, they don't come to you like today, today. I would be working all the time, but not them. Did that put any sort of strain on your relationship with Cindy Williams? No. no. In fact, I did a lot of, you know, the, I did Laverne, you know, much to ABC's consternation. The one show they could not blacklist me from was Laverne and Shirley. So I did three or four of those. I can't remember. And, you know, and, you know, no, no, we were very, very, very close. And she totally understood. And she threatened Paramount. You know, she threatened not to do any publicity for Laverne and Shirley. I put that whole letter in, in the book, unless they did a commensurate amount of publicity for us. She was amazing. What actor would do that? She was like like a, a hero to this film. And, you know, we went to New York when it got re-released, you know, and did two weeks of publicity she took off from Laverne and Shirley to do. And, uh, you know, that's a friend. And, but she loves the movie. She absolutely loves the movie. Yeah, I spoke recently to Garrett Graham, and he was saying that one of his favorite memories is doing The Creature Wasn't I, Nice. He's so great. And, you know, that, that's another sad story, you know, but I don't like to think of anything as sad or negative. But, you know, the, uh, the movie that could have been isn't, you know, or shooting that movie, unbelievable. So much fun. The dailies, unbelievable. Great, huge laugh. And then you have a cutter who's a fucking alcoholic. Wouldn't know comedy if it hit him in the face. And for some reason, in that film, I'm being very passive. I'm letting people 
make decisions that I should never have let them make. And I, I can't even tell you why. I was looking through the day runner stuff about that stuff. I can't even tell you why. I've never done that in my entire life, been passive. You know, nudie musical is what it is because I was not passive, ever. And the creature is the antithesis of that because I couldn't figure out how certain things should work in it because we shot a lot of stuff off the cuff, you know, which was really funny. And it's just because because I didn't have Steve and Nathan with me there to have fun. You know, and I'm working with this guy who has no sense of humor. I, I just couldn't see it. You know, at some point you just stop being able to see. And had I had a young kid in there who was creative, or even an old kid who was creative, it would have been a whole different movie. You know, there's tons of stuff that got left out that's hilarious. You know, all of Leslie's stuff is fantastic, as you might imagine. So it's a huge disappointment to me, that film. You know, my cut, interestingly, which I have, um, there are things that don't work in it and that I would love to go back and get all the footage and, you know, make my new cut. But if you look at my cut, you know, the, the problem with the movie back then was Airplane came out. And that's all people wanted. They wanted gag-driven comedy. And I don't do gag-driven comedy. You know, that kind of, you know, where it's gags that take you out of the movie. Uh, you know, and it worked beautifully in Airplane. You couldn't ask for it to work more beautifully. Do you know what I mean? It was just the right movie at the right time. But The Creature Was Nice was not that movie. And it had really funny things in it. Really funny things, especially in the original cut. And the cast was amazing, but it wasn't that. But when they recut the movie to the movie that everybody knows, that they tried to make it Airplane. They just took the plot out. They re rearranged the scenes, uh, these scenes that are from the middle of the movie or at the beginning, scenes that are from the beginning or in the middle, and it's not linear. I mean, it appears to be linear, but it's totally not linear because you don't, you know, my thing is you always got to learn about the characters, and then everything is fine after you learn, you know their deals. So the entire setup to the movie is learning about the characters. That's the first third of the movie. You don't get to the planet until 30, 30 minutes. In, the, in their version, you get to the planet in six minutes. Well, I don't know who those people are, so I don't understand it. And so it's not funny to me when Garrett is doing what is one of the funniest things in the movies, where he's, Leslie is trying to count down 10, 9, 8, so, and Garrett is counting, you know, doing other numbers to confuse him. I mean, that's hilarious if you know those characters and their relationship. But when you don't have that, it, it just lays there to me. And, you know, there are, listen, the movie has big fans, but I don't understand it. But the, my point here is my cut of the film, which I watched about a year and a half ago for some reason, because I would like to put it out on Blu-ray, my cut of the film has sort of weathered time well, because we're well beyond the airplane now. So suddenly this looks like, oh, I see. This is kind of like a classically laid out plot. It's Alien is what it is. It's a musical version of Alien. But laid out like what, what happens in Alien. You get to know those people. Then they go to a planet. And then there's problems. But you wouldn't care about any of those people if you didn't get to know them. 
And so that was painful. It was, but you know, it's, it's you look back on it, and you go, so fucking what? So, you know, that happened. And, you know, it's, it's some things are meant to be and some things aren't meant to be. And, you know, I would love to put out our cut and uh, someday I will. But it's, uh, it was such a joy to put a long-winded version of his Garrett was unbelievable. And he was the last person to come to that film because there were many others before him who were going to do the film and, and didn't. And I'm very grateful to all of them for not doing it. And they were some good people. Chris, Christopher Lloyd was the first. Well, he had signed to do it. And then he had some personal stuff, personal personal problems, and he begged us to let him out of the contract. And we did. And then it was going to be Tim Thomas. And, you know, we just went through a lot of people. Larry Hankin. But I think, you know, I had loved Garrett and Phantom of the Paradise. And I think Cindy brought his name up, and I said, oh, my God, Jeff, absolutely. Don't even read him. Just give it to him. And he was so funny and so creative. And we did. We had the best six weeks on that film. Has there been any discussion as far as, a, a, like, a Blu-ray release? I would do it. I don't have, you know, I had a mint print of their version. And a German company came to me and said they wanted to put it on DVD. And so the deal was I had to let them store the print for the three years of the license in L.A. So I agreed to that. Apparently, they never paid their bill. And so the place where it was being stored never called me. They knew who I was, that it was my print. Never called me. They auctioned off the print. And and it went to a guy I know who offered it to me, but I said, no, I have a print. It's in storage. <laughs> and now he doesn't remember who he sold it to, because if he, if he remembered, I'd go pay the guy to make a copy of it or whatever. So until I find that source or the negative, God knows where the negative is, you know, because they never copyrighted the picture. It's public domain. So... You know, I have the DVD they made from it, and it's really good quality. Looks great, but I can't make a Blu-ray from a DVD. So it's a it's a crazy situation because you know, if I had that pristine thing, then I could then I don't mind putting my cut, which is on three quarter inch tape and looks like shit, because it, it's just what it is. You know, it's a historical. You know, this is what the movie should have been, but. It's a little nutty. <laughs> now, what are you up to these days? I gave up sort of everything to do with my old life in 1993 and became a record producer. I was just offered this incredible opportunity, and I was not happy. You know, I I just spent like two and a half years on a Fox TV show that was very financially lucrative, but just was a killer shell and I was very very happy to get out of that and uh, so I I had started a label in the late 80s called Bay Cities because I had helped start Verez Saraband in 1978 which was a big soundtrack label I got them into soundtracks their first soundtrack release ever was the first duty musical you know, I got them projects over the years, and then they didn't like when I had this other label because I saw that they were all millionaires and I'd go, what the fuck? You know, I could have owned a third of the company for $1,500. What was I thinking of? So I, they didn't like that we were in competition with them, so they asked me to shut it down and come there, and I could do anything I wanted, and they would pay me money, and I could 
make a lot of records. So I did that. And that was how I found my life, really. So I did that for seven, eight, nine long years of doing like 19 albums a year. It was just insanity. Nobody's ever done it. And then some things happened and I stopped doing that for a while. And I kind of went back to writing. I mean, I started writing novels in 2001. And in a month, I just published my 16th book. What else did I do? Oh, you know, I went back to writing for the stage. And, and uh, you know, David, my friend David Wecker and I wrote a movie in the late 90s that got made uh, called The Faculty. Yeah, I wondered if that was the, the same Kimmel yeah, or not. We, we, we did the script. They didn't use much of the script. So we, we settled for the asked us if we could just take story credit without having to arbitrate. And they paid us a lot of money for that decision. So we said yes. And, uh, but we wrote the original script and story. Yeah, I remember reading a version of that probably 97, maybe somewhere around there. And yeah, because I mean, Rodriguez and Williamson were just so hot properties at that time. No, it was amazing. It just came out of nowhere. We hadn't been able to give that script away. And they just wanted something for him to rewrite and direct. He was going to make his directing debut, Williamson. And then he decided to do Mrs. Tingle instead, and they gave it to Rodriguez. But once they gave it to Rodriguez, it was a go, absolute go. And so that was really nice. Uh, but, you know, I'm back to, I, I, I don't care about film so much anymore, but I do a lot of theater and direct theater and cabarets and write a lot and don't act so much anymore, and that's fine. And I have a, I'm happy, and I have a record label still, my own, and uh, I've been doing that for 10 years, and we've released 200 and something albums. It was really nice to see you show up in the Ghastly Love Johnny X. Yes, I did show up in that, didn't I? But, you know, I yeah. shot that originally in, like, 2002 or three or four. It was, like, really long time ago. Yeah, we interviewed Paul about it, and he was talking about just how long it took to get the film. A decade. It was a decade. Because he wanted me to come back and shoot something else. And I said, Paul, No. <laughs> I said, I'm not doing it. I said, you have what you have, use it, and that's it. And But you God bless him, because look at the chutzpah to see that through and then release it. And, get it out. and I put the soundtrack out on my label. Oh, that's terrific. So, And it's fun. It's a cute movie. No, it is. It's very nice. Yeah, we had him and uh, it was him and Reggie Bannister coming on the show and talking about the film. I tried like heck to get uh, Paul Williams. I, I keep it's trying. hard to get down things. because we did a whole, you know, I do this monthly series of cabaret shows, um, which are really popular. We're about to have our sixth anniversary of doing these monthly shows. And we did a Paul Williams evening, and we tried so hard to get him there, and he just doesn't go places anymore, and he doesn't think, I guess. I mean, he, he asked us to send him a, a, some Film, you know, we filmed them. I mean, we recorded them for archival purposes. So we sent him some videos. But he's odd. He's an odd duck. Orgasms are short spasm of love, sweet love. Orgasm sure has them doing it. Nicely doing 
All right, we're back, and we're talking about the first nudie musical. Mr. Kimmel definitely touched upon, or not really touched upon, he gave us the whole scoop on why the first nudie musical isn't as popular as we might kind of hope that it is. You know, we mentioned before the the title was one of the reasons. Uh, You're going to choke on maybe one of three of the words of the title, and probably first is not one of those. So either the nudie or the musical is going to get you. But then I like Trevor, how you said, as soon as you heard musical, you're just like, yeah, I'm in. I'm one of those weird people who, if it's musical, I'll give it a look, no matter how terrible it may be. I mean, I paid to see Carrie the musical when it was downtown once, so... There you go. I really wondered if Mike thought I was kind of a pervert and he was like, oh, you should, you know, check out the first nudie musical. It's like, hmm, you couldn't get anyone perverted on the podcast, huh? Or as unabashedly perverted as that. Unabashedly perverted. Yes, exactly. Is that my selling point? It was you or Heather Drain, and I just used Heather way too much this month. So I know who to go to for my perversions. Oh, well, I'm glad to be useful for something. Well, I think I have plenty of people on my friends list who I can go to for perversions. Maybe that just says more about me than I care to admit. Yeah, like we were saying about the first new musical from the from the way the behind the scenes, it sounds like Paramount just kind of just kind of torpedoed it, kind of kind of screwed it um, because Cindy Williams was just becoming big out of Happy Days and, and Laverne and Shirley, and they didn't want her associating with a quote unquote porn film as that one tabloid said in the, in the documentary. So it really kind of really was actually a very sad state of affairs that it kind of got screwed before it even got off the ground. Well, it's so terrible too, because first new musical, I mean, yes, there's lots of, well, there's songs about perversions. There's songs about different types of sexuality. There's penises and vaginas all over the place in this film, but it's not a dirty movie. No, it's not. Yeah, there's it really dirty, isn't. But, I mean, there's no there's nobody actually doing it. I mean, there are a couple of scenes where people are on top of each other, but it's not explicit. It's not exploitive. It's it's played for laughs, not played for titillation. Angela, you brought up earlier you did, with the term stunt cock, you mentioned the film Orgasmo, and it kind of reminds me of Orgasmo in that Orgasmo, there's like barely any swearing if memory serves there's like we rarely see there's no actual penetration there's just some simulated sex most of the most of the things that we see on screen are bare male buttocks and the nc or mpaa I almost said the NCAA because they're very into censorship, you know, that, that college basketball association, they wanted to slap this thing with an NC 17. And it's like, really? I mean, orgasmo, it's the same kind of thing. It deals with some very salty stuff, but it's a really innocent film when it comes down to it. I I mean, I would say in the first nudie, yes, there's a lot of beard breasts, but no one's, you know, suckling or, you know, putting them in clamps or anything yeah. else. I mean, they're just dancing around. It's like, well, there, there's really nothing perverted about seeing naked breasts. Yeah, it's it it really kind of does speak to um to censorship even today. I mean, it really is kind of you're right though. We are kind of prudish today, and that kind of speaks to it because not much language except for Smithy's 
little dialogue at the beginning. Which is just so over the top. Yeah, and there's no violence. All it is is basically just naked people, and people would just assume, oh, that must mean it's a porn. The pendulum definitely has swung uh, way the other way from where we were with sexuality when it comes to this. I mean, it's great that we can be in a world where we're embracing different sexuality, non-heterosexual sexuality when it comes to, like, actually allowing people to marry, you know, and to not, uh, you know, uh, be openly hateful to people because they are actually people, you know, the, I mean, amazing that we can actually treat people like human beings yeah, these days. I know it's crazy. Right. But, but the idea of, you know, showing uh, bare breasts and these kind of things, I mean, we can, we have all these – it always cracks me up when we have these medical shows or even these things like, you know, My 600-Pound Life or whatever, and we can show every inch of this person's body. They can even be wearing no pants because the fat is kind of over their, their crotch, but God help us if we get anywhere near nipple, that blurring machine is going to come out. Or as Gary Seinfeld called it, a, a little protuberance, I believe he called it in that episode. And that causes, when I caught the vapors. Like, I was watching the documentary last week, this film is not yet rated. Have you say I've seen that at all? Oh, yeah. yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah, they were mentioned, um, they were talking to um, Maria, uh, Maria Gallo about how the cooler got an NC-17 just because a very short shot of her, of her pubic hair. Like, that's insane. It's yeah. absolutely insane. And um, going back to uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, they um, intentionally put stuff to get cut out to get the MPA to tell them to cut it with Team America. Like they intentionally made the, the puppet sex scene a lot more um, graphic just so they can cut it and make the MPA feel like they accomplished something. Right. So um, and that. There, so there still is a bit of prudishness today, and well, probably even more today in the rating system. Um, I would say so. I mean, even in the trailers for uh, Nudie, in one trailer she mentions fellatio. It's like, wow, I can't imagine that word being in a film trailer now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now they'll they'll always put in a, an explosion or a hit or something. If somebody says, "Let's go kick some ass," they'll kick. They'll They'll cut out the word ass, and it's like, really? Can I mention a, one of my favorite trailers that had that trope, Mike? Uh, sure. It was for Robot Jocks. And, nice. And uh, the end of the trailer, he goes, um, he's looking at the camera, a kick, your, and it cuts to an explosion. <laughs> and it's, that trope is just so overplayed. And now trailers uh, today, you can say shit in a Green Band trailer, which kind of caught me by surprise when I first heard it. I'm like, I was watching the the trailer for Horrible Bosses 2, terrible film, by the way, and he said shit in it. I'm like, I had to make sure it was a green band. I'm like, the, so trailers are kind of, you know, getting a little more lax, but yeah, I still don't think they can get away with fellatio. Would you guys recommend the first nudie musical to your friends? Absolutely. You know, I definitely would, but I do think, since it was made 40 years ago, one of the wonderful things about DVD and having the extras and that I suppose the option for artists to be able to show more of what they had crafted or more of what they had imagined, you know, than just what can be wedged into the hour and a half release time, the play within a play, I would love to think that if, 
you know, Kimmel had had the opportunity to have the DVD, we would have been able to see the whole uh, come 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 again come come again. Was that the sequel or was that the the first? The sequel one? was come come again. The original was come come now. Good call. That's uh, a, I I would have loved to have seen you know that. What well, because I'm sure they had to sort of map out what that would have been, you know, to write around it, right? I don't imagine there was much sinew between those bones. Let's put it that way. I, I imagine that it was more like, here's a funny song. Let's put this here. But I don't imagine there was any connector. I, I was actually contemplating that. And I put that note in my in the notes as far as what would that movie look like. And I think it would be very vignette-based. I mean, we don't really have, other than the woman who ends up playing our villain in the film, we don't really have very many characters that seem to be in many scenes. So it feels like... (laughs) The ingenue was only in, like, what, three or four scenes? But she got one of the longer musical numbers. Well, there's the ingenue, but then there was the woman who ends up being uh, the the evil one, the one who is constantly fighting. Yes, yeah, LaRue, I Yes, which I just like to mention. You know, talk about stereotypes. Being a redhead, so of course the woman that goes gaga over the large penis and then has sex with him, presumably for hours until she passes out from it, had to be a redhead. Is that like a stereotype that redheads are notoriously? Sexually vivacious? Oh, I've <laughs> never heard that, and that really does explain my thing for redheads a lot clearer. <laughs> Angela, I thank you for clearing that up for me. Well, you having a thing for redheads is just good taste, but well, yeah, I, I, mean, I suppose there are other layers. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play trailer for next week's show. When it's time to fight crime... He's your man. Tracy. 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 You mind if I call you Dick? Okay, boys, let's go. Come on, Tracy, take me with you. You're under arrest. I want more. You got a name? Kid. Kid? Kid. Walt Disney Pictures presents Warren Beatty. Make a note, Pat. They waived their right to a phone call. As Dick Tracy. Aren't you going to frisk me? Now that's what I call a damn. I think Tracy drives you crazy, doesn't he? When do we get Dick Tracy? Everywhere I turn! It's Tracy! 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 This summer... Tracy, watch out! He's coming to a theater near you. I'm on my way. Dick Tracy. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, where I'll be joined by Jared Case and Frank Centropadre. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Angela and Trevor. So, Trevor, what have you been up to lately, sir? Usually in my free time, I, I just audition when I can find them. Uh, I sing with the Seattle Men's Chorus as an upper second tenor. We just did our last concert with our current choral director about a month ago, and we're starting with a new choral director in Christmas for our Christmas show, so I'm really excited about that. I'm not currently doing anything right now, but I will be probably doing plays or films in the near future, so I'll keep you updated about that. Very cool. And just so folks know, when I don't ask Angela if she's up to anything, it's not because I'm just being a dick and I'm, I'm not being you know sexist or anything and just like, oh, I have a female guest co-host and I will completely ignore what she has to do. So... That's because I, I have things in the work, but but they're, they're just not finished. 
eventually there, there's going to be a podcast where I'm like, I finished the book and everyone's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to go buy the book. Well, Angela, like I, I was telling Mike, you know, I know he's sexist because he probably didn't like the Ghostbusters trailer. So trigger warning, trigger warning. There you go. That's what happens when you stuff a horse, uh, a dead horse, even. That's not on the bestiality question, was it? <laughs> Where did we want to end on uh, stuffing the horse joke, so... <laughs> well, I thought it was funny that he did nudie this week, and he's doing dick next week. Oh, yeah. Well, there was that joke uh, on Men on Film and Living Color. They were talking about Dick Tracy, and they hated it because everybody looked like their character. Flat Top had a flat top, prune face had a little... had a prune face. But I didn't get a chance to see Tracy's dick. I didn't get it at first when I was younger, because I was like 10 when that episode aired. But yeah, that is funny. Um... <laughs> It's Tracy, but it's not a porn. But it could have been. That's never happened. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a Dick Tracy porn out there. Yeah, but I'm not going to go look for it. I think I might have to now. All right. Well, let's wrap this thing up so I can go check out that Dick Tracy All porn right, we'll film. Have back so. when you see that. All right. Thanks again for coming on the show, guys. Thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to head on over to projection-booth.com where you can find out more about the movie we discussed today as well as find a link to our Patreon page where you can help make a donation. Donors get early access to every show. That's one more way to help the projection booth take over the world. We're just dancing dildos, are we? Dancing, you see, just for you. Happy to be here with you Dancing dildos, we meet the test We'll stand up tall and then you do the rest And then dancing dildos, aren't we gay? Dancing all night and all
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.